We made this. Hello and welcome to Frame to Frame, part of the We Made This podcast network. We are the podcast that take two seemingly unconnected films and slam them together with greetings and salutations. I'm Andy Williams. And I'm Sean Wilson. And this week we're going to be looking at anti-Valentine's Day films. So not quite Valentine's Day films, but also, I mean, there's a touch of romance in both of them. Yeah, I I suppose it's perfectly tailored to the Valentine's Day will be having coming up in 2021 which is not going to be normal uh everything is turned on its head yes well yeah i mean you know i'm locked down with with my wife and children so yeah, and, and, you know being stuck in a room is uh <laughs> kind of standard valentine's day and, and i'm not that i'm on the opposite so i'm so i'm on my own so we're kind of both approaching this topic from the kind of sense of yeah slightly skewed sort of valentine's movies uh which yes to fit yeah. the mood <laughs> well yeah i mean so i'm i'm not about my wife's not really about sort of sitting and watching the notebook on valentine's day or watching like these super soppy romance movies on valentine's day we'd much rather be watching uh either film that we cover today so the two films we're going to be looking at will be fatal attraction and heathers both are out in the late 80s and both have a sort of touch of murderousness or threat of murder about them yeah so we're going to start off in sean's favorite way which is chronologically. So, Sean, why don't you tell us a bit about Fatal Attraction? Yeah, so this is a 1987 um, thriller, uh, romantic thriller, uh, directed by Adrian Lyne, written by James Dearden, uh, produced by Stanley R. Jaff and Sherry Lansing for uh, Paramount. So this film probably needs very, very little introduction to people. It's the classic uh, pot boiler, bunny boiler, uh, talking point movie. It's one of the the great uh, sensations of uh, of 1987. I believe it was the most financially successful movie of that year it took 320 million dollars against a 14 million dollar budget so astonishingly successful and really got under the skin of (laughs) of audiences uh, all over the world for a variety of different reasons so the basic plot is uh, Michael Douglas is a uh, lawyer with a um, called Dan who has a, a, a very happy family life. He's married to Beth, played by Anne Archie. He has a young daughter. Uh, of course, they have a dog, which completes the picture. And you know, you know, what I'm like about dogs, so I went, I went gooey every time the dog. And this is a completely incidental, like digressive point, anyway. Um, and then he he is representing a um, a publishing firm in a case which brings him into contact with Alex Forrest, played by Glenn Close. And uh, the, the two actors have got really good chemistry together because they meet at kind of a formal drinks reception issue. And you can see that there is some kind of a spark there. But he's married. She doesn't appear to be married. We don't really know a lot about her. They have a professional uh, meeting which then turns into an after work drinks before you know it there is a lot of sinky sinky bangy bangy watery splashy action going on uh, and i just thought okay that just looks well just I mean, it's very 80s it's very messy so yeah, the uh, uh, the running tap was kind of a little bit too much for me yeah exactly yeah and then and then and then later it turns into a bit of um, elevator, elevator, bangy, bangy as well, which is, again, is classic sort of, it's a, it's a very 80s film. There's a lot of, let's say, choreographed set pieces, for want of a better word. 
Uh, and what then? That's set with a T, by the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Boom. Um, and what then happens is, so Dan is treating this as uh, nothing more than a fling. As I said, he's a married man. Alex, however, sees something deeper in this um, apparently illicit uh, liaison, and she wants more out of this. Uh, and, and quite unsurprisingly, she doesn't want to be treated as somebody as a as a piece of trash who's going to be left by the roadside. She's kind of like, look, yeah. you, you initiated this. Kind kind of physical relationship with me what does this mean for me as the woman he wants to go back to his family and to completely turn his back on it on this affair she's like no I'm, I'm not having that and then one thing turns to another and she starts to become psychotically obsessed with with him uh to the extent that she uh later on reveals that she is pregnant with his child she's not planning to have an abortion uh, there is the notorious sequence in which their daughter's new pet bunny rabbit meets a very, very grisly end on on the stove, mm-hmm. and it's essentially uh, it's a it's a it's a really interesting film watching it back. As I said, it's very much a product of its time, and I think not all aspects of it have aged that well. I mean, um, the hands on the, the cards on the table, the, the performances are superb. All of the acting yes. is really good. I mean, um, Glenn Close and Anna Archer were both um, Oscar nominated for this for Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress, respectively. And I think it's the acting that gives it the real credibility. The, I mean, because I think watching it back now, admittedly from a 2021 perspective, I think there is uh, the way the way that the um, women are positioned in terms of their roles, I think is slightly troubling to say the least. I mean, what it's basically saying is you can either have the slightly winsome wife at home who will stand by you no matter what, or you can have the kind of the the frizzy haired psycho who, you know, maybe serves to act as a little bit of fun, but wouldn't you know it, that kind of will, (laughs) that will come back and sort of bite you spectacularly. And I think that that, that simplicity is slightly troubling and i i think it, it was clearly a very controversial movie and feminists were really not happy with it mm-hmm. in in the 1980s largely and this this is the key point i'm getting to now largely as a result of the fact that they changed uh the ending so the original ending essentially had alex uh, killing herself and and then attempting to frame dan for it and i think that that is obviously the natural conclusion to the movie because Dan, if you want to look at it in this way, Dan is quite clearly the bad guy. He instigates it and then he tries to walk away from it. And then, you know, Glenn Close's character is like, no, I'm not having that. And then his wife gets sucked into it as well. And then they change the ending to the one we've got where Glenn Close ends up being shot in the bathtub. And it's just, you know, I find it a little bit queasy the way they didn't have the courage of their intentions there. What do you think? Yeah, well, um, so Glenn Close sort of really, really hates the fact that um, Alex is viewed as a villain. And she apparently sort of fought for about two weeks to refusing to, to shoot this ending. Because, as you mentioned, the, the original ending was filmed and sort of completed. And then the um, from test screenings is when they, they went back and changed it. So she held out for about two weeks sort of refusing because... She's really taken this character to her heart. She doesn't see her as a villain. Um, in subsequent interviews um, and sort of throughout the, the time between the, the film's release and, and now, she has come out and sort of been honest about her own issues with mental health. She set up mental health foundations. And she just sees um, Alex as, as being sort of not, the, not a villain, but more, more troubled. More, more So she said she did a lot of research for the, um, for the role and she sort of came up with a, a backstory as to what kind of abuse and um, 
trauma she'd suffered in the past and she had all of this in mind so one one particular scene that 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 sort of comes to the fore is when Alex is looking through the window at the the family unit of Dan and his wife and his daughter and she's looking at the the family and they're playing with the the rabbit sort of preceding the the infamous bunny boiler scene and she turns around and she's sick and she actually physically vomits and no one questions the reason for that. The film doesn't question the, the reason for that. So it's it's not interested in her problems. It's only interested in the problems that she creates for Dan. And that's where it sort of falls down a little bit. I think it's interesting, the fact that um, Dan has very, very few male relationships in the film. Um, he has a, a friend from work who he goes bowling with. But other than that, he's surrounded by women. But that doesn't make up for the fact that all he does to these women is use them when, as and when he wants them. Um, but going back to the, the start of the film, one thing that uh, that I found particularly interesting was that the the opening reminded me very, very much, as did the the structure of a lot of the the film, reminded me a lot of Eyes Wide Shut. You know, in the the opening, they're, they're preparing for a brand new gala, and they're it's a they're sort of hoity toity party, and then at this party, something occurs which changes and sort of kicks the narrative into a almost a sexual odyssey in two very different ways. And I just found it really, really interesting, the fact that there's a, a, a number of years between the, the two films, I think it's about nine years between the two films, and they they mirror each other sort of so closely. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's interesting that you say that, yeah, you open with the New York cityscape and it creates, like Eyes Wide Shut, it creates a a landscape that's at once recognizable yet also is slightly on the cusp of being lurid and seedy i suppose in in that sense that's an interesting comparison i I didn't think about it like that i think yeah the way i mean it's it's a very very conservative movie i mean this this is the difference between it and stanley kubrick stanley kubrick would never have made a movie that draws such simplistic conclusions in its finale as this again this goes back to the fact that they they changed the ending the fact that they did they 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 adjusted the narrative to make um you know alex the psychotic villain that has to be put down one final time in the manner of a, a vampire or, or a ghoul or whatever which is real shame because it, mm-hmm. it, it almost it suggests that you know what in order you know the the presence of the fling with the apparently psychotic woman and then the disruption to the family life and the the resulting dead woman in the bathtub all of that is needed to restore those kind of patriarchal family conservative norms at the end because it's very telling that the movie ends with a push in towards the photograph of Dan's family at the end and it's kind of like wouldn't you know it you know he's he's allowed to have his transgressions he's allowed to have his little bit of fun he's allowed to have his dalliance he's allowed to compromise the, the fabric of his family but you know what it all works out in the end and that it's slightly disappointing. I think it's it, yes. it's it's disappointing that it that it work that it works out like that because I think that there that I, you're right that the way that Glenn Glenn Close's research into this character was very very evident and it's interesting you mentioned that scene when she looks through the window at the half at the sort of idealized Norman Rockwell esque setup when they're all playing in in the front in the front room with the rabbit and she throws up. I wondered in that scene whether is she throwing up because she's seeing a version of the idealized family that she'll never have, or is she throwing up because it's at that point that she devises the idea to kill the bunny rabbit and maybe it repulses her so much 
that she actually physically reacts to it, but she goes ahead with it anyway. I did think that that there are those ambiguities about the character. The, the dignity of the performances is is really well is really well brought across. We should say that it's adapted by by screenwriter James Dearden from his own nineteen uh, eighty short film uh, Diversion, which apparently um, Nicholas Mayer, the director of Star Trek Two: Wrath of Khan, um, assisted on that, and then he he expanded on on that idea. And I think that certainly there is there is a sensationalist aspect to this film. There's a sensationalist aspect to it, and there is there is a more sober kind of probing aspect to it, as in what what uh, what are the what are the correct moral decisions to make. And I think it fall, ultimately it falls down more into the former. It definitely falls down more in, into the sensationalist realm. But I mean, the, the, the behind the scenes stories are very very interesting because they apparently they weren't convinced about casting Glenn Close in this uh, in this role uh, initially. Um, in their words, they didn't think she was sexual enough, I'm quoting there. And um, Glenn Close apparently thought that she'd completely messed up her first uh, audition with Michael Douglas, but clearly she hadn't. It was This is a, a, re- a really, like, a real star-making performance for her. I mean, before this, she'd done Jagged Edge and The Natural and The Big Chill and, and a few other films. Then after this, she would go on to get another Oscar nomination for Dangerous Liaison. So it was a real career-defining uh, role for her. And I think that it's a testament to the actors and Michael Douglas as well, who is really good in this, um, playing yes. a very unsympathetic character. That they, they are able to bring that that level of, of nuance to it. There, there's a brilliant moment with Michael. Michael Douglas is a really good actor. I mean, he I, I've seen comparisons with... Um, I've read comparisons online with the likes of Fred McMurray from Dublin Indemnity, the idea of the apparently ordinary guy who is all of a sudden very morally compromised in this situation that's out of his control. And he does, he's done this. You think of things like Basic Instinct and Falling Down and Disclosure, a lot of roles mm-hmm. like this. There's a, there's a scene where Dan moves his family into this new sort of country home to which Alex later stalks him. And by this point, she is obsessively calling his home, calling his office, and he's quite obviously strung up. He hasn't caught, he hasn't told Beth and Archer's character yet what's going on. And the phone rings, and he picks it up, dreading that it's going to be her on the other end of the phone. And it isn't; it's someone else. And he, he, I can't remember the name of it. It's like Martha or something. He, he quite clearly breaks out into a big grin and goes, "Oh, Martha! It's Martha!" And then he looks at the, at the removal man and goes, "It's Martha!" And like the removal man doesn't know what he's talking about, but he's so obviously relieved that it's not the person he was expecting. And that is a really well observed. I think it's quite a male thing. That's quite a male thing. When you're yeah. so obviously relieved, you 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 verbally <laughs> verbalize what's going on in your head. <laughs> Little things like that. Yeah, I think that. Um, I mean, well, all you've done there is call to mind Batman v Superman because. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Now I'm just thinking, why did you say that name? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, one of the things that that struck me about the film was um, the first scene where we sort of feel that that something's amiss, something's not quite right with with Alex is is when um Dan tries to leave after the weekend because he's got things to do and she sort of makes a, a bit of a fuss and says no don't leave don't leave whatever and then as she's sort of standing there the music and she's in the kitchen the music then sort of hits up and tells you that she's not just now saying off you go there's something else happening here and that's when you you see that she's first cut her wrists and I think the use of music in that scene, I think, uh, is it Morris Yar's score? Mm, Morris yeah, Jara? Yeah. Um, who who also did um, films such as Dr. Zhivago and A Passage to India. Lawrence Arabia he, as well. 
that that's the one yeah. <laughs> um i think what what he's done in that scene just that little known film you know yeah um what he did in in that scene was perfectly score the mood and it it goes back to to the old saying that that you always go to is score the mood not the the scene and i think that's what what the music has done here i wouldn't necessarily say it's one of the all-time classic scores but at the same time i think it's uh it's well worth a mention. See, I think the score is actually one of the least distinguished parts of the of the film. It's funny that you, you singled out for praise. I'm actually going to go in completely the opposite direction to you, um, surprisingly, for this podcast. We never do this. We never go in the opposite directions on, on the same subject before, because why would we do that? But... Uh, I just think that what if you got the composer of Lawrence of Arabia, you know, Maurice Jarre, one of the greatest film composers of all time, why would you get him to do to do a score that's basically a load of electronic, synthetic clanging and banging and doesn't really contribute? But there is a kind of coldly attractive, I suppose, piano family theme, which comes out more of the themes with, with Dan and Beth and his daughter. But I thought the score was just pretty ill-defined, Really, it's disappointing. Like Maurice Jarre did go through an electronic period in the 80s and he did a lot of scores that frankly weren't very interesting. There were other composers around that era that did this stuff a lot better. You think of things like Jerry Goldsmith, who was much, much better at this kind of thing. So that's... Oh, there we go. A Jerry Goldsmith mentioned. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Did you set that up just to get me to, to, to kind of crank Jerry Goldsmith into the conversation? I didn't need didn't, to, Sean. I don't. Need to. I don't need to set things up specifically for you to mention Jerry Goldsmith. <laughs> but yeah, there is that. Um, actually, when one of the people we haven't really mentioned is is adrian line so i mean adrian line the director had done um flash dance before this after this he would go on to do movies such as jacob's ladder and adrian line is very much a, 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 a british british director but came out of the kind of very slick glossy kind of mtv era in which the, the package was very very package is very glossy and one could accuse a lot of his films of okay is there actually anything going on beneath the surface and i think this is quite clearly probably his most famous and successful film although i think jacob's ladder is 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 really worthy of a mention i think that's really creepy and there are shot i think there are shots in jacob's ladder that clearly have their origins in fatal attraction there's cross cutting from um Michael Kahn, the editor, brilliant editor who often very work, works a lot with Steven Spielberg, one of the best editors in the business. There's a lot of intercutting between different sequences in Fatal Attraction that makes you anticipate something dreadful about to happen, particularly in the bunny boiler sequence, which you get Anne Archer walking towards the pot that's boiling over and then the daughter outside running towards the rabbit mm-hmm. hutch, which is very sinister. And that that approach was used a lot more by Adrian Lyon in um, Jacob's Ladder, which was really creepy. But I think in in terms of Fatal Attraction... There is stuff going on beneath the surface and the actors have clearly done their research and there is clearly good intentions to it. It's just a shame that they had to yield to audience expectations in the way that they did. I think that was that was a real position. Whether it would have become a bit a bigger movie or not, I don't know. I mean, Glenn Close has had the humility to say, look, that's what audiences wanted at the time. It, it, the audiences basically wanted it to be a straightforward morality tale of good versus evil. And you can see for like pretty much the first three quarters of the movie if not more than that the movie wants to be more than that the movie wants to put you in this very very icky situation with this guy who quite clearly deserves all the calamity that's brought down on his head and yet he's not the one who's punished it's 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 the Glenn Close character yeah I think this film would be very very different if it was made now I I don't think that um that that he would have gotten away as as scot-free as he does um there's that that one scene where he has an argument with his wife when he, he sort of comes clean about everything. 
and that's kind of the only it's the closest thing to recompense that he gets um because the the entire film is it's like you say it's, it's based around showing Glenn Close's character being um being the, the sort of the the psycho driven businesswoman who, who wants nothing more than uh, a good man to love but um I think we're going to move on from Fatal Attraction to a film that had a working title of Lethal Attraction, interestingly enough. Um, so that's going to be Heathers, uh, which, as, as we mentioned, was released in 1989. It was written by Daniel Waters and directed by Michael Lehman in both of their film debuts. And it stars Winona Ryder, Christian Slater, Sharon Doherty, uh, Lizanne Falk. I think there's a, a string of, of great young performances in the film. Uh, not least Winona Ryder, but we, we'll come to that. Um, so it tells the story of Veronica, who is in school and just befriended the Heathers. So three Heathers, Heather Duke, Heather McNamara, and Heather Chandler. She's befriended them, and, and they sort of get her to, to write notes in the handwriting of other people. And she sort of, they're their biggest friends and the biggest enemies at the same time. And she is sort of going through school and really really disliking the the popular girls in school so what she then does is she she meets uh christian slater's jd um which will again will come to the significance of that name um so she meets him and uh then a string of deaths subsequently happen uh they're being staged as suicide uh by the hands of both christian slater's and uh, Winona Ryder's characters. So what you've got here is the complete anti-John Hughes movie. Uh, you think of the teen movies of the, the 1980s. You've got Ferris Bueller. You've got The Breakfast Club. You've, you've taken these tropes in in Heathers and completely subverted them and made it really sort of dark and cynical. And I absolutely adored this film. I really, really loved it. It was the first time I'd watched this as, as well as, as Fatal Attraction. But I knew far less about this going in. Um, I absolutely adored it. I think it was uh, really, really light of, of touch. It didn't uh, what what they wanted to be heavy, which was the the, the suicides and the, the death aspect of it, was great. But what they managed to do was keep the the tone and the humour uh, really, really present throughout the film. Um, what did you think, Sean? I I really liked it. This was the first time I'd watched it as well, and it takes. It takes a very, very difficult subject and I think it applies exactly the right sort of tone to it. I think it's quite telling that the movie begins with um, a scene of croquet and croquet then becomes a running theme throughout the um, the movie. And it didn't hit me until quite late on. That I thought, is that an implicit reference to Alice in Wonderland? I wouldn't be surprised if that was. I haven't, re- I haven't read up on that, but if it is then that would seem to assert the notion this is this is a very skewed kind of fairy tale-esque universe in which you know the um the 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 pastel colors in the primary school are slightly too exaggerated or the performances are heightened very deliberately both the, the high school characters and also the adults and i think what the movie does really well is it puts you in an adolescent high school mindset whereby you get the flip from kind of malicious wish fulfillment as in i wish this bitchy high school clique actually met a horrible end to actual consequences to that actually becoming a reality Mm -hmm. and i think centrally that is located in winona Ryder's character because it's her emotional unveiling that's at the center of the movie isn't it she's like she she is part of this heather's clique at the beginning 
and she doesn't really want to be part of it. She takes part in horrible, like bullying activities, and then she finds herself turning against them, but turning against them and actually wanting them to die. And then, and then the, this clique actually subsequently dying and it being made to look like a series of suicides. Those are two very, very different things. And I think the movie, it gets its blackly comic laughs in, but it's also got a real moral spine to it as well. And that's the key thing there. If it didn't have that morality, it wouldn't work as well as it does. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think it's um, it, it's very, very telling. I think that the when when Veronica's writing in her diary, I think that one of the, the lines that she writes is, my teenage angst now has a body count, which, <laughs> yeah. you yeah. know, that's the kind of dark humour that we're dealing with here. It's... Um, it's it's brilliant, and I just wanted to to ask you about the the character of JD played by Christian Slater. Um, he was channeling Jack Nicholson in the film. I think you can everyone watching that will be able to to take that away. But the significance of his name, um, he's very James Dean, isn't he? He he is very James Dean. I saw him essentially as the high plains drifter outlaw cowboy character sort of, sort of coming in he's the enigma on initially on the fringes of the story who is then kind of brought in he's he brought in he essentially sorts out the situation for want of a better phrase so he sorts out the situation in, in a very very black the comic very unsettling kind of way and i and i think the the presence of the the harmonica on david newman's score reinforces that as well there is a very western cowboy twang to him and i think it's an interesting mix yeah james dean jack nicholson the clint eastwood kind of cowboy man with no name obviously he hasn't got a name in this but that that's an enigmatic presence <laughs> i think he's done i think it's done very well and again it's a very well judged performance it could have been very cartoonish and i think yeah. reading into it apparently christian slater wasn't necessarily convinced about the character that he was going to be playing when he when he first read the script and it's interesting like glenn close to fatal attraction they weren't convinced about winona Ryder for the central role and apparently winona Ryder had to go and sort of change her her appearance in order to convince the filmmakers that she that she could be uh play this character and i think that both the lead actors have got exactly the right handle on on the tone of it there is a kind there's like a mocking self-awareness to it. the fact that she wears a moniker a, mon- a monocle when she's writing her um her diaries i think that's just a brilliantly kind of like throwaway kind of fairly grotesque little flourish and um, quite exaggerated but i think i think i think it's quite funny but they also get both actors get the seriousness underpinning the story and i think that that's that's the reason why the film works it's kind of like 50 percent of the movie is designed to kind of provoke a needle and make you laugh in a somewhat uncomfortable way. But then the back end of the story has to be about, right, it can't go on like that forever because that will just be a kind of misanthropic, cruel exercise. You know, there need there needs to be a kind of a, a series of moral consequences to this story. And mm-hmm. that I think that I think is what um what you get. I mean I have to say I think the um the performances of, of the adults, like the, the people playing the non-high school characters is very funny. There's a scene in which a policeman is um, is kind of running through the woods and he kind of pulls a very exaggerated kind of like um, Hawaii Five O kind of pose as if he's he's acting out <laughs> the role of being a policeman. The little nuances yeah. like that are very, very funny. And then you get the school board as well, the school board who are just as idiotic and as self-absorbed as the teenagers themselves. And you've got the the, the English teacher who's constantly running her mouth and everyone thinks, well, you're a hippie, just be quiet. And everyone like, rolls their eyes. Mm-hmm. And th- th- those scenes are very funny. And I think that's important because it's, it, it's not just taking a swipe 
at teenage cliques. It, the whole universe of this movie is populated with grotesque, kind of self-absorbed characters. I, I think it's very well judged. It's, it's John Hughes movies, isn't it? That's you know, even you, you, you know, you look at the the principal in or the vice principal in um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He's just obsessed with this one kid. It's so heightened and, and out of this world. And what John Hughes is trying to do in that movie is not what uh, Lehman's doing in, in this movie. So I think that um, Heathers is deliberately trying to, to take off those those kinds of tropes and um, and completely subvert them. But what I find really interesting, we've mentioned him once before on the podcast, but the writer, Daniel Waters, originally wrote this with Stanley Kubrick in mind to direct it um, on the strength of Dr. Strangelove, which, I mean, I'd have loved to have seen that. Yeah, same. Stanley yeah. Kubrick's high school comedy. Um, yeah. So, And that, that sort of stems from uh, from Full Metal Jacket, where you've got, in the, the opening of Full Metal Jacket, you've got the entire scene at the, the, the drill camp. And in Heather's, after the the croquet scene that you've mentioned, we have a, an extended sequence in the, the the cafeteria, and that is supposed to be originally in the the original script. That was where uh, that would take place for for forty five plus minutes, and then we'd move onwards with the story from there. But um, but yeah, Stanley Kubrick high school comedy in nineteen eighty nine would have been uh, would be very very different. Yeah, that would that would have been interesting. Again, there there is. I mean, you can clearly see the influence of Kubrick. Again, the the very that you get these very artful kind of surrealist tableau of people sort of arranged in the frame, people doing things that are absurdist and violent, but presented in a, in a blackly comic way. You can definitely see the influence. That it's very confidently directed by Michael Lehman. It's very very well designed. I said very well scored by by David Newman as well. The score has got this kind of electronic woozy almost like ghostly atmosphere to it and it's not it's not necessarily a case of um sort of a positive or negative register in terms of the score the score remains quite neutral and again you're you're meant to take away what you will from from the actions of of these of these characters and i think it's very I mean, Daniel Waters' script is superb. He went on to, um, mm-hmm. to, to co-write uh, Batman Returns for Tim Burton, and I wouldn't be surprised if he was the one who smuggled a lot of the more grotesque elements of Batman Returns into that, because that's a, that's a much more twisted movie than Tim Burton's first Batman film. So I wouldn't be surprised mm-hmm. if that if that came from him. But, yeah, I mean, interesting yeah. with, with Michael Lehman, he went on to do Hudson Hawk, of all films, like one of the most notorious infamous box office flops of all time Hudson Hawk with Bruce Willis I mean like what happened like <laughs> well I mean that was also co-written by Daniel Waters yeah. so um <laughs> yeah that was uh that was a slight misstep but um <laughs> I've I've been reading up on some of the the fan theories of the of Heathers and I just find them fascinating so I want to run a few by you mm. um so some people theorized that this film is about the fall of the Soviet Union Okay. Well, I mean, it, well, I mean <laughs> also, it, it came out around that time. So, I mean, that's not too much of a stretch, but yeah. Some people also, also theorize that it's about the, um, the Civil War, the American Civil War. That I don't see. <laughs> I don't, don't see that. <laughs> I think it's to do with, um, like you mentioned, the, the JD character representing the, the sort of the North and coming down and taking down the old money. Uh, of the south 
I think that's that's the way into that. So so, so the old um, the, the old money being the establishment of the school in this instance, which he wants yes. to bomb at the right. Okay, yeah. So, um, and the the final one that I thought was most intriguing, mostly because we'll we'll get into the the use of the book anyway. Um, that the film is Moby Dick, and um, the the whales are the heathers, and the protagonists are Veronica. How do you feel about that one? Well, doesn't isn't isn't JD reading Moby Dick throughout throughout the book, or he's reading a book, isn't he? Well, yes. So, um, so he one of the Heather's has has the book Moby Dick, and um, she gives it to him, and he then goes and underlines parts of the the book as part of her suicide. Yeah. But interestingly, the only reason that they actually used. Moby Dick was because they couldn't get the rights to Catcher in the Rye. They weren't allowed to to use Catcher in the Rye, which was the original choice. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of where I think people th- this theory will fall down is that the that Moby Dick was actually only ever used as the the, the secondary choice. But um, I mean, it's just baffling when when you look into the the potential different readings of of this film, and they're all equally valid. You know, if you see this film was Moby Dick, then fine. It doesn't necessarily mean that it was there when, when the, the creators were actually creating, but, um, but Hey, if you see that, then you see that. Um, I think it's worth pointing out as well that this was an absolute box office flop on its original release. It, um, it had a budget of around $3 million and it grossed around $1.1 million. Um, it was first released at Sundance in 1989. This was sort of before, Sundance was as as big as it is today, but it was it was an absolute flop. It, critics sort of, you know, thought it was kind of okay but not great. Uh, its subsequent success came from from home media, and that's where it really really picked up a life of its own. Um, whether that be on VHS, Laserdisc, DVD, or Blu-ray, but um, what what has happened subsequently is it was adapted into a musical which is right up my street, less so down yours. But um, <laughs> I really, really want to see a musical version of this. <laughs> that would be very interesting. I'd love to know how they, how they do that, how they take the, the misanthropic qualities of it and do it, do it on, live on stage. That would be very, very intriguing. Yeah, especially like there's, there's certain scenes, like the ones that, that, that you mentioned with the police officers when they, um, when they find the, the two footballers that have been staged to look like they've had a, a suicide pact. I want to see how they do that and how they make that... Uh, you know, musical theatre is inherently supposed to be relatively light. I know there's exceptions. You look at things like Les Miserables and what have you, but it's generally speaking light entertainment. So to have something that that walks this this line, this tonal line of um, absurdist and dark, but also f- like the, to have something that the, the walks this would be would be fascinating so i'm i i really can't wait for for all of this to end and i'll be able to to go and see what it actually is like um it's also been adapted into a tv series oddly enough which does have the original star of of shannon doherty uh guest starring in the pilot do you really think this has got enough legs for a a tv series to be honest i think it's a pretty self-contained story it tells it tells the story that it needs to tell and it gets out at the end and I think it, it's it, the, the length is perfectly tailored to the to the material. So I don't really see. I think it might get quite annoying being stretched out to the form of a TV series. Mm. I think it really would outstay its welcome because I think there's only so much 
arch satirical weirdness that you can take on this particularly tricksy subject matter and i think that i mean clearly the movie the 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 the, um, issue of teen suicide is much much more um apparent now i think in in the in the Mm. year in which we're living now and i think heathers has now probably got much more relevance than it did back in the 1980s i mean perhaps that's why it struggled with audiences maybe this wasn't spoken about as much whereas i think now it's much more embraced because it has the the guts to, to deal in a very upfront very stylized manner with with the topic that's very difficult it's it's very it's very challenging and i think a lot of people are do they they people do find it difficult to talk about and i think that the it's filtered through this central again mainly through the winona Ryder character she is at the center of it. interesting that she was in beetlejuice the same year as this so she was really the kind of in vogue like movie brat sort of star you know the movie brats design describing all the sort of young actors that arose out of that sort of post mtv generation throughout the mid to late 80s but she was in this and beetlejuice the tim burton movie in the same year mm-hmm. so she had a really extraordinary year in 1988 as did Glenn Shaddix, who played the yeah. uh, <laughs> the pastor. Who yeah, played yeah. The, the that's the word, the priest. Yeah. Um, I, I think he was he was great. He's again one of those those arch characters that that we talk about that um, that, that sort of occupies this universe. But it is interesting that um, that Winona Ryder had to really really lobby for this part. You mentioned that um, she had to go and, and and sort of change her her visual features in order to to do that. But um, I think that. What is also interesting is the fact that the her agent told her, "Do not take this part. It's a it's a career ruiner. It's it's not going to be good for you." Um, and she actually offered to do this film for free. She really, really wanted this part, and you know, it's it's her that makes the film. I think um, Christian Slater is is good in it, and he he now he he becomes the the Christian Slater that we now know from from other things. That if you've watched Mister Robot. You can very clearly see the the lineage of his performance in that to um to this, but he is only as good as as his chemistry with Winona Ryder. I think she is absolutely brilliant in this, and she was really really underrated as an actress way back then. Um, I think she, she has sort of come back back a little bit more, and people are, are really sort of beginning to to see what she can do, especially in things like Stranger Things. But um, I think way back then she she was kind of underrated. Yeah, yeah, she, she, it's, it's a very difficult part to play and she has to exaggerate it just enough to make us realize that this isn't, this isn't strict reality that we're watching, but there has to be an emotional truth underpinning everything. And I think that the way that she, she becomes infatuated with the, the JD character that they, they do um, verbally reference Bonnie and Clyde in the, in the movie. And I, I, sort of cottoned on to that just in advance than saying although there's a definite bonnie and clyde thing going on here there's there's an outlaw romance which then curdles and sours and she then realizes that oh you know what i took to be um a, a fling that then turned into a kind of murderous escapade is now having a, a you know it, it's obviously it's it's horrible you know it's horrible it's 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 dangerous and the way that she turns against him is uh, and she kind of finds that 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 moral that moral spine within herself. I think is very very well wrought. But again, it's not done in a preachy way. That's it's that that's the good thing about it. It, it maintains that acerbic, absurdist humour right through to the end. At one point, she, you know, in order to in order to get back at him, she okay, she she says to him, right, okay, so you're you're staging all these murders as suicides. I'm now going to stage my own suicide. 
by a pit of yeah. hanging myself in my in my bedroom just to see what his reaction will be and that that's a kind of microcosm of the film there is a very very serious intent under it but it does it in a very arch very satirical nasty blackly comic way um and i think it's a very it's a very there's a very contradictory film but i think it, it it assimilates all those things together i think you're absolutely right i think it's um what what it manages to do is walk the the tonal differences very very well and that is sort of praise to to all of the the actors uh, but mostly to to the director because he's the the one that had the the central call on on most of these things. Um, so that'll pretty much do Heather's for this week. But what we're going to be looking at next week will be good guys turning bad guys. Um, so that'll sort of leave us for for Valentine's week. We do have. Um, uh, all sorts of, of different recommendations. If you want to look at our social media pages, you'll be able to see some of the, the different recommendations that we have for Valentine's Day, whether they be um, more traditional uh, films or, or some more sort of left field films. We will uh, we will put some, some definite ideas up there. Um, I've already included Love, Simon as one of them because that's what Film 4 will be showing as their main movie of the day on, on primetime on Valentine's Day, which is just an absolutely brilliant film. Um, it, it wouldn't really be have been suitable for this episode. It's not. It's not murdery enough. <laughs> but um, <laughs> no, Love Simon's actually actually a very sweet natured, very wholesome. But we we haven't done wholesome today. <laughs> no, this is this is definitely not that. But um, <laughs> but hey, we, you know we'll we'll be putting all sorts of different movie recommendations up on our, our social media pages. You can um, of course have a look in the show notes. You'll be able to find us on social media there. Um, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on Letterboxd. Uh, you can email us. There, there's all sorts of ways to get in touch. Um, we're also a, a proud part of the We Made This Podcast network. Again, you can find all of the, the information on the, the network in the show notes. But as I mentioned, next week we'll be looking at good guys turning bad guys. We will, of course, let the movies... Uh, be known on friday as normal uh through our social media channels and that will give you time to watch them ahead of the the, the episode going live i'm really looking forward to to these films because you seem particularly passionate about at least one of them um and that's usually good news for me because i can just sort of set you up and then off you go for for 20 minutes that's kind of it well yeah either that or, but, or, um, or, you, or you just take the air out of my tires and like it's like a film that i really like it's like, <laughs> and it's like right okay I'm, I'm, yeah, i don't like this film and here's why <laughs> so it's just like yeah here's why i don't like it. yeah exactly well, yeah but the, i'm sure <laughs> they're both good popcorn i'm films. sure that won't be the case yeah we, we've got two we've yes, got two good i think that's films. what we're in a mood yeah what we're in the mood for is is popcorn films. So, um, hey, we'll uh, we'll let the the films be known on um, on Friday as normal. But until then, uh, we will be recording about good guys turning bad guys. Until then, I'm Andy Williams, and I'm Sean Wilson. And please continue on listening to hear some of the other great shows on the We Made This podcast network. Bye bye. Elsewhere on We Made This, the time is now. A Millennium Podcast. Uh, but no, I mean, I, I, I will say that Rise of the Machines um, also kind of like argues against... Um, Terminator 2, of course. Back to where, where it was. Like Rise of the Machines like then goes, <laughs> maybe they're both right and shrugs its shoulders. It's like, maybe you can prevent Judgment Day, but only for a little while. And it's like, that's not an argument. Pick a side. Pick a lane. You can either change the past or you can't. None of this wishy-washy. You can change it sometimes, but you can't really change it. So it all balances out. Yeah, no, pick a pick a damn side. <laughs> <laughs>
Don't say the C word. On the back of my right arm, I have a tattoo of Phil Collins. It's, it's, <laughs> it's the front cover of No Jacket Required. Um... <laughs> <laughs> this was the one that I expected you to pick, I'll be honest with you. Because yeah. it is my favourite of your tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a tattoo I got as a joke. A, a lot of my tattoos that I've got, uh, a lot of, well, a lot of everything that I do <laughs> is because it's a joke or if, if I think something's funny. We Buy Records. Eric Clapton and Van Morrison have released an anti-lockdown song. How, how do you think about this? Where does this sit on the shitometer? I think it redefines the shitometer. Right. I just, you know, I mean, so I think it's raising money for musicians who are affected by the lockdown and the lack of gigs, etc. Mm-hmm. Which is a good thing. Yep. But then you see Van Morrison and Eric Clapton, a bad thing. So, right. do you know what I mean? I mean, I love I yeah. love Van Morrison's music. I don't particularly like Eric Clapton's music. I quite like the 60s stuff. But, I, you know, they're a couple of whinging old men, aren't they? Old man babies complaining that they can't go and lick whoever they want. Ooh. I know. But that's what they're singing about, I think. I haven't, I haven't checked that. I assume that the lyrics are about... You can take it as read that I haven't heard it. <laughs> it's not likely to have a banging donk on it, is it? It's unlikely to have a banging donk. Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This podcast network. Mm-hmm.